Hello, and welcome to Entangled, the podcast where we explore the science of consciousness, the true nature of reality, and what it means to be a spiritual being having a human experience. This is the Maharishi Vedic Science miniseries. first question you're probably asking is, what the heck is Maharishi Vedic Science? MVS is the knowledge and experience of pure consciousness, Atma, the self of every individual, as brought to light by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. This systematic study, experience, and development of consciousness is taught at Maharishi International University, MIU, where I'm currently enrolled in a master's program, as well as other universities around the globe. Here is a clip from episode 48, the first in the MVS miniseries, with Dr. Keith Wegman expanding on the definition of Maharishi Vedic science. Dr. Wegman runs the Consciousness and Human Potential program at MIU, where he also teaches courses in Sanskrit and Maharishi Vedic science. Why don't we start with Maharishi Vedic science and what does that even mean? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. It's the study of consciousness and human potential. <laughs> People think of Vedic science, maybe they've heard of the Vedas, or they've certainly heard of the Upanishads and the Yoga Sutras and the Bhagavad Gita. These are all the literature of this ancient and continuously practiced tradition of knowledge. So the Vedic tradition in India is considered by the United Nations to be the oldest continuous tradition of knowledge in the world. That means it's been practiced in the same way, essentially for a few thousand years, at least, or more. And so Marshi Vedic science has the name Marshi in front of it. Really in the last half of the 20th century, uh, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi revived the core practice, the core experience of the Vedic tradition, which, which is this, uh, this same process of the mind settling down, experiencing its own inner nature, and then expanding. And it's a personal experience you know, you can have that, anybody can have that experience, but it's also, there's something very universal about it, some some unboundedness, some universality about it. Um, and that's really what Marshi kind of opened up. He emphasized that this technique that he taught, he, he called it transcendental meditation. Um, it's really a form of yoga and meditation from this ancient tradition, but he called it transcendental meditation or TM. And it's it's really, he started bringing out this practice as an ideal sort of antidote to the really fast and dynamic and often chaotic and stressful pace of modern life. And that was back in the 50s. So he thought, this is something I need to really teach everybody, um, because he noticed from the, the ancient tradition that there was descriptions of life as bliss, that life is really made up of bliss or ananda, and why you know, if that's the nature of life, why aren't people experiencing that? So this is part of the things that drove Maharishi. So, so he brought out this practice, and then many, many people started to learn, ultimately millions of people. And then, and then he went further into the understanding of this Vedic tradition. So not only sort of the core technique or technology from this ancient tradition, but then the understanding of all these different aspects of Vedic literature. And that includes the fields of Ayurveda. Ayurveda is a 
ancient, n- natural, comprehensive system of healthcare. Um, Tapatyaveda is an ancient, natural, holistic system of architecture. The Yoga Sutras and all the practices of yoga, pranayama and asanas, things like that. All these things are there in this in this tradition. So he went very deeply and sort of located the primary position of consciousness within within all these practices and understandings of bodies of literature. So he, in a sense, he really revived this ancient tradition. He sort of, you know, for for centuries it had sort of been decimated or scattered because of foreign rule and, and invasions and stuff throughout India. All of the, the techniques and traditions sort of became a little more withered and sort of and broken up. And so I think what what Maharishi really did is to sort of revive and refresh everything from its foundation to its applied value. So it's it's incredible the amount of work that he did over over that time then from the 1950s up through the early 2000s. And so that's what we teach in the program. So it's connecting now this ancient tradition of knowledge and, and science of consciousness to what is now a really fascinating and emerging field of study of consciousness in the neurosciences and the cognitive sciences in, in psychology and physiology. So this particular field of study is deeply, deeply ancient, but now it's it's really cutting edge in terms of um, you know modern science and what, what they're looking into. One of the main points of attraction of MBS for me was its ability to explain many of the biggest mysteries confronting modern science, mysteries that span seemingly unrelated disciplines. In the field of neuroscience, this includes the hard problem of consciousness, or the question of how the human experience of conscious awareness unfolds from an apparently material universe. In quantum physics, this includes the theory of everything, or the search for a foundational cosmic force that unites all the laws of nature. Here's Dr. Krista Noble explaining in episode 49 some of the core differences between the mainstream materialist cosmology with that of Vedic cosmology. Dr. Noble is a professor of consciousness studies at MIU. The mainstream paradigm of science has the idea in it that everything is physical in nature. And traditionally, that's been tied to the idea that everything is made of matter, that matter is fundamental, that everything is somehow reducible to matter. Um, now, that is that view that matter is fundamental, and it actually isn't even consistent with recent advances in modern physics, because we're finding that the more deeply you go into the nature of reality, even just through a sheerly physical lens, uh, things become less and less material. You know, we start talking about non-local fields, a unified field. But traditionally, that has been the view that, that um, everything is made of matter. And one of the most challenging questions then, if everything is made of matter, is how does consciousness fit into that picture? How is it that something that's made of matter, that has all of these very concrete qualities, like a physical human brain, how does that produce a first-person perspective, a subjective experience? How does it produce thoughts and emotions and perceptions? And um, it's something people have been struggling with in one form or another for hundreds of years, but especially now with materialism and physicalism being the mainstream paradigm, it's extremely difficult to explain how consciousness fits into that picture. So yes, the, the Vedic view on this topic is that actually 
consciousness, intelligence in a, a non-local form is fundamental to reality and that it gives rise to matter. So it's um, turning the whole view the other way around. From that viewpoint, matter, if not that matter is an illusion, but matter would be seen as a way in which consciousness perceives itself, a way in which this non-local universal consciousness perceives itself, the Vedic cosmology. The claim is that that inner state of pure consciousness that anyone can reach if they have an appropriate technique is actually the same as this field of pure existence. So there's this level beyond the senses that underlies all of life, but also underlies our individual minds, our individual subjectivity. And so there's this level of unification where everything is one that's at the basis of both individual minds and uh, the physical world. Maharishi taught that there are seven states of consciousness accessible to human physiology, although most of us go through life only experiencing the familiar waking, sleeping, and dreaming states. However, through the practice of transcendental meditation, we can achieve a state of restful alertness, transcendental consciousness, or samadhi in Sanskrit. And that through the repeated integration of TC with our waking state, we can eventually achieve permanent states of enlightenment, which he described as cosmic consciousness, the fifth, God consciousness, the sixth, and unity consciousness, the seventh. Is the attainment of enlightenment our birthright? As I've examined teachings of spiritual leaders throughout the ages, Thoth, Krishna, Hermes Trismegistus, Pythagoras, Siddhartha Gautama, Jesus Christ, Shankara, Rumi, etc., I've come to recognize that they were all communicating this exact philosophy. Although many of their messages have been lost throughout the ages, misinterpreted by disciples, and obfuscated by the corrupting influences of organized religion. Here's a clip from episode 50 in which Dr. William Sands expands on the philosophy of yoga, the path to achieving the state when individual mind and cosmic mind are one. Dr. Sands is the dean of the College of Maharishi Vedic Science at MIU. Yoga is, is understood in the modern world as being collections of exercises, physical postures that you do on a mat in a studio, perhaps, or do it at home. But yoga is much more in reality than just exercises. They're called asanas, and the breathing exercises are called pranayama. Um, and that's how, how yoga is understood. Sometimes uh, there's included some meditation of some kind, uh, usually not very effective or not, or not very, very useful. Uh, but that's what's considered to be yoga. But traditionally, yoga means much more than that. The Sanskrit root that it comes from is yuj, Y-U-J, and it means to unify, to bring together, uh, to, to put into a state of unity in transcendental meditation, that we, we experience the inner self. We experience more refined levels of the thinking process, subtler levels of the mind, subtler levels of the mind. And ultimately, we can experience a state of pure consciousness, pure awareness, pure being, we sometimes call it, which just means consciousness alone by itself. No objects of thought, no objects of perception, uh, nothing but pure, unbounded awareness. And that, traditionally, in the philosophy of, of yoga, is the state of yoga. It's the state of yoga because it's a state of complete unity. And it's a field of pure unity. But what we find is, and what we find through the regular practice of TM, is that this field of unity begins over time as, it, as the nervous system becomes more refined and more cultured and freer of, of stress and anxiety and, and all of that. 
it begins to show itself in, into our activity. When we find that from TM we become happier, we become more fulfilled, we become more uh, alert and bright and, and aware, that's the integration of the inner self with our outer activity. The integration of our inner self and our ad, outer activity is also a state of yoga. It's a state of yoga because it's a union between the inner self and, and outer activity. And that results ultimately in higher states of consciousness. Higher states of consciousness are states in which one experiences the unbounded, blissful, universal field of pure intelligence along with one's normal activity. So yoga is really, uh, there's two senses of it, just, just to make it kind of a little simplified. There's the, there's the path of yoga, which is the, the asanas, the meditation, the, the breathing exercises, which help you to experience the state of yoga, which is the inner self and ultimately higher states of consciousness. Dr. John Hagelin is the current president of MIU and a renowned quantum physicist. Dr. Hagelin received his PhD from Harvard before conducting research at CERN, the European Center for Particle Physics, and the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center. Along the way, he began practicing TM and came to recognize that Vedic science provided the answer that had stumped the greatest physicists of the 20th and 21st century, namely an answer to the theory of everything, the nature of the fundamental cosmological force uniting the grand unification of the strong and electroweak forces with gravity. In 1987, Dr. Hagelin published what I believe to be the most important paper in physics since Einstein's theories of general and special relativity. In that paper, he proposed that consciousness itself is that fundamental force, an expansion of superstring theory known as the unified field of consciousness. Since that time, he and other researchers have been at the forefront of research in quantum and astrophysics, including the exploration of the nature of dark matter. Here's PhD candidate Ken Kachedjian in episode 51 describing his views on dark matter after having spent time with the physics department on that research. So let me ask you then, what do you think is dark matter? Okay, the question that I asked Dr. Hagelin was, do you think that this dark matter could be the, the stuff out of which thoughts are made? And, you know, he talked a little bit about how the subtle body is something that's discussed in many different forms of literature. Right now, what they're looking for is anomalous changes in weight gain. Now, how people interpret the results, that's different. And also, all of this is unpublished. But basically, what I think dark matter is, I came into dark matter research really excited because I read Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials. And the whole thing was about links, potential links between uh, dark matter as an exotic form of matter that we don't understand, and potentially it observing long-range evidence of intelligence. Dark matter is thought to exist in halos that surround the galaxy. And now we know that it's not uniformly distributed. And also, it's our best working theory for how, if we're traveling around the sun at a certain speed, we're traveling at, I don't know, 50, 60,000 miles per hour, something, something crazy like that, and we don't feel it. Our solar system is traveling at like hundreds of thousands of miles per hour around the galactic coral. With that amount of speed, by Newton's classical mechanics, two things should happen. We should be ejected off it, out into space a long, long time ago. You know, the, the pull 
of observable matter in the galactic core is not enough to hold us. And also, the spiral shape of the galaxy is being held intact at every point. That shouldn't happen, because the points that are closer to the galactic core should rotate faster than the ones that are further out. They're, if they're rotating at the same speed, when you're farther out from the galactic core, you have to traverse more distance. So the spiral shape of the galaxy shouldn't be possible. And yet it is. So where are we then? Well, there has to be something that's managing that beyond Newton's classical mechanics. They're a product, I think, of the mid-1600s. So, you know, science has advanced hundreds of years since that point. And we haven't talked about the reality of the world being framed in terms of physical part states in over probably a hundred years, seriously. So then where does that leave us? The physical is surprisingly non-physical. There are structures of intelligence in the universe of which we know very little and yet are responsible for a lot of the observable empirical effects that advanced physics has witnessed. So my, my thought, I think it probably has to do something with the subtle body, but it'll be really interesting to see what the, what the empirical results from the scales are. Because they, they have built a Faraday cage. They spent many months on buoyancy analysis, just making sure that the buoyancy due to the air around the scale isn't messing with the readings. They have the room controlled in half of a degree Fahrenheit at all times through heating and cooling systems in the inner lab chamber and all kinds of fancy gizmos and gadgets. And that's because they know that whatever results that they publish, regardless of the claims that they make, it's cutting edge science. And so they really need to make sure that they cover all their bases. And that's where I'm at in terms of what I got excited about. And I, I thought it had something to do with the subtle body. The scientific research supporting field consciousness theory as a cosmological explanatory model continues to compound. We are fast approaching a tipping point in which mainstream science will be forced to acknowledge its validity and to stop dismissing the field of metaphysics as pseudoscience and parapsychology. When that finally happens, I believe the ripple effects will profoundly impact every discipline of science and every aspect of human society, not the least of which will be our understanding of the true nature of death. Here's my classmate Kendra Wilson in episode 52 discussing her goal to prove that consciousness persists after death, a goal I'm confident she'll achieve in this lifetime. Yeah, I've been really passionate about finding a way to measure consciousness. And at MIU, they do have great tools for that. Dr. John Hagelin, he said that they have a high-powered scale and... That might be one of the things that I'm interested in. And I think just proving that death doesn't exist, I think that could create world peace in people because so many times people have fear based around death and it's completely subconscious. Like there's so many people who don't do things on the day-to-day -day basis because of this underlying fear that they have. And they might not even be consciously aware of it so I think that being able to prove that consciousness exists beyond death, I think that would create a level of peace within humanity that would just have a beautiful ripple effect around the world. You know, I would love to be the one to research that. And if somebody copies me, that's even better because I just want it to be out there. And I've been really passionate about people who have had near-death experiences and 
just hearing their stories. I love Dr. Raymond Moody. He's one of my favorites. He's on Gaia and he has a book called Life After Life. He's an MD, PhD, and he debunks a lot of the ideas of like, well, maybe it's just oxygen deprivation, but it's like, well, why are the doctors witnessing their life story or why are the doctors seeing things and having experiences? And they've also had instances where people have been getting a brain scan due to seizures and during the is an EEG brain scan, they die, but then they come back and then they have this experience, you know, and it's like, well, their brain was dead too. It wasn't just their heart. It wasn't just oxygen. So I think there's a lot more to near death experiences and I'm super interested. I'm always open to hear stories, you know, and they just kind of come to me in divine right timing And I just, I would love to do research in that field of proving that consciousness exists after death. And a lot of times people say they actually become more conscious. Like there's a super consciousness that occurs and there's no time or space. The relationship between consciousness, time, and space is a fascinating one that has inspired the curiosity of philosophers for thousands of years. In the familiar waking state of human experience, consciousness certainly appears localized to the individual, dependent on both time and space. However, we all know those constraints go out the window during the dreaming state. And when we start exploring higher states of consciousness, that's when we can directly experience the mysterious field effects of consciousness, the realm of the infinite, unbounded by time or space. Here's Dr. Fred Travis in episode 53 describing the phenomenon of non-locality and the relationship of consciousness to the nervous system. Dr. Travis is the chair of the Department of Maharishi Vedic Science at MIU, dean of the graduate school, and director of the Center for Brain, Consciousness, and Cognition. Do you believe that consciousness is non-localized? It's both. As a field, it's non-localized. But it can participate in time and space when it interacts with the nervous system. The analogy I like to give in my classes, um, you have the sun, that's like pure consciousness, which just exists. It's shining all 360 by itself. And then you have different reflections off of iron and earth and water and oil and so on. And the reflection is made up of two things. Reflection is made up of the qualities of the object of the reflector mm-hmm. and the sun. Mm-hmm. And I see that's who we are. We're fundamentally, we are that field of consciousness. We're not our body. We're not our age. We're not our sex. We're not our education or anything. But we are that lively field of creativity that wakes us up every morning. And what that does, it interacts with the physiology, the reflector, and we get individual experience. Mm. So yes, consciousness can be located in the functioning of an individual. And that individual through transcending can actually experience their basis in the sun, in pure consciousness. Mm. And then they can appreciate this full range of who they are. I'll be releasing an episode in the MBS miniseries every Monday for six weeks for those who'd like to dive much deeper into this ancient and cutting edge field of knowledge. I'd like to end this intro by highlighting a passage from the book Cosmos and Psyche by Richard Tarnas. Copernicus's De Revolutionibus, the epochal starting point of the scientific revolution, was published in 1543. Historians of science have often noted that virtually no significant advances were made in the Copernican Revolution for almost half a century after 1543, not until Kepler and Galileo embraced the heliocentric hypothesis starting in 1592. 
During this period, the entire scientific revolution was decisively propelled forward as Galileo began his revolutionary studies in the laws of motion, and Kepler experienced his initial sudden illumination concerning the geometrical harmonies of the planetary orbits. It's now been 60 years since Maharishi Mahesh Yogi published his first book, The Science of Being and the Art of Living. While most of the scientific community has failed to recognize the significance of his theories, the researchers at MIU and those of the metaphysics community more broadly have been diligently testing the hypotheses of Vedic science. The quantity and quality of research now supporting field consciousness theory is incredible, and I suspect the validity of a consciousness-based cosmology will soon be accepted by the mainstream as a self-evident truth. When that happens, the scientific and societal transformation it drives will be as significant as the one experienced when humanity moved from the geocentric to the heliocentric model of the solar system. Finally, I'll leave you all with some words of wisdom from Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Jay Gurudev. Science of creative intelligence is a systematized knowledge for opening our awareness to the center of creative intelligence. And as we know, all the energy and intelligence that we display in our action comes from thought. Thought comes from deep within us, we may call it. It comes from some source of thought. So that source of thought is the center of creative intelligence. And once we open our mind to that and open our awareness to that, uh, we are sure to draw any amount of intelligence and energy to be displayed in all our fields of interest in active life. So science of creative intelligence mainly uh, takes the awareness to that source of creative intelligence within the individual. This science of creative intelligence will also correct the great misunderstanding coming on through centuries. What people had thought was that this relative life, because it's always changing, changing, so it's no good. Throughout the ages, man had thought that it's changing, it's no good. No. Our presentation of life is that deep within is the infinite value of energy, intelligence and happiness. Bringing our awareness to that one feels fulfilled. This fulfillment is then radiated in all the ways of oh, thinking, speaking, action, you know. So the surface doesn't have to be, to be ignored for the depth. Because the value of the depth is to support the value of the surface. The value of the surface is to bring out the value of the depth.